High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. You Must Remember This is sponsored today by Slack. Create a new team at Slack.com slash Remember This and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash remember this. We're also sponsored today by Harry's. Get $5 off your first purchase at harrys.com with promo code REMEMBER. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting reads and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. Last week, in our episode on Elia Kazan, we briefly mentioned his collaboration with playwright Arthur Miller. 
That collaboration would extend to three plays and one aborted film. In July 1952, headlines announced a break between Miller and Kazan, which was a shock. This was, after all, the team responsible for one of the greatest stage successes of the century, Death of a Salesman. And the reasons cited for the falling out were vague. The New York Times reported simply that Miller confirmed that Kazan would not direct his new play, called The Crucible. And, quote, It is known that a disagreement, nothing to do with the play, though, exists between them that would make any further association incompatible. That disagreement was that Kazan had named names to HUAC three months earlier, much to Miller's disapproval. And Miller's new play, much to Kazan's disapproval, conflated the HUAC hearings and the general American panic concerning communists with the Salem witch trials. Kazan and Miller would become estranged for a period of about a decade, and then reunite to collaborate on the production of Miller's play After the Fall, an extremely autobiographical work which, amongst other things, had a character seemingly based on Kazan who justifies informing. In some blacklist narratives, Kazan is positioned as the face of the two-faced informer, while Miller is championed as a model of how to resist all of the pressures to which someone like Kazan succumbed. But in actuality, though their fates were absolutely intertwined, Miller was under totally different pressures than was Kazan, and Miller's story can be seen as just as much of a thorny tragedy, in part thanks to his relationship with Marilyn Monroe, and the way that relationship made its way into Miller's work. Join us, won't you, for the Blacklist story of Arthur Miller. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover, Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. I get a lot of emails, and amidst the deluge, inevitably I have trouble finding the important emails with crucial information when I need them. But when it comes to important work stuff, email still beats phone and Skype, where there's no paper trail and no accountability. And in-person meetings are a total productivity suck. There's gotta be a better way. And there is. It's Slack. Slack is a messaging app for teams. It brings all of your communication at work into one place, integrating with the tools and services you use every day. Slack wants to make your life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. 
Cobbling together a million different communication tools like email, IM, and Skype is not efficient, and it will leave you and your team frustrated. Slack pulls all those disjointed conversations into a single, organized, and searchable view. There's no better way to make faster decisions and increase transparency across teams. And you don't just get messaging with Slack, they also make sharing files easy. If you use any services like Google Drive, Dropbox, or Trello, just paste the link and the document is immediately uploaded and searchable. Best of all, Slack users report 32% overall productivity increase, 48.6% reduction in internal email, and 25.1% fewer meetings. Visit slack.com slash remember this. Create a new team and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash remember this. Arthur Miller's father was the boss of a garment company, which was prosperous enough in 1915 that William Fox went to him asking for an investment in his new movie studio. The senior Miller turned Fox down, and by the worst of the Depression, his fortunes had fallen far enough that the query from Fox almost seemed like it had been a fantasy. By 1932, the family's troubles had forced Miller's older brother to drop out of NYU. Miller emerged from his own college experience with the idea in his head that he was going to be a writer and that the primary purpose of writing was to say something about the world one lived in and, if possible, change that world for the better. Miller also believed that in order to say something, one ought to know a little something about the thing that they were talking about. So in 1940, a matter of days after marrying his college sweetheart Mary, Miller set sail alone for Europe the setting of a play he was writing about Nazis. While many Americans at the time, including the Midwestern family of his new wife, were anti-interventionist in these months before Pearl Harbor, Miller was looking at the approaching World War II from another side. He saw the anti-intervention point of view as blindly pro-capitalist and unconsciously anti-Semitic. As a Jew from New York whose family prospects had melted away thanks to the failure of capitalism that was the stock market crash, Miller believed that the European conflict was, as he put it, a new version of the old imperialist conflict of the previous world war, another last gasp of an expiring, self-destroying capitalist system. Inherently opposed to Hollywood as a manifestation of this system, rather than an incubator of art and ideas, Miller was nonetheless thrilled during wartime to see a studio like Warner Brothers making a film like Mission to Moscow, persuasive propaganda to make Americans feel good about their crucial ally in the war against Nazi Germany. But his own wartime experience in Hollywood was less inspiring. He had been in New York writing radio plays for the WPA and had worked for a year at the Navy Yard. In 1943, he was approached to write a screenplay based on the columns of war correspondent Ernie Pyle. After months of research that took him to Army training camps all around the country, Miller produced a script which, in its form, aimed to reflect his philosophy of how to better cinema. There was no part written for a star. Instead, each member of the ensemble was given equal attention and weight. Of course, Hollywood wasn't interested in that. 
Miller was replaced by a series of screenwriters, and the movie got made as the story of G.I. Joe. And it turned Robert Mitchum into a star. Miller's first play to reach Broadway, The Man Who Had All the Luck, opened in 1944 and closed four days later. A story about the near-psychotic fear of failure impelled by capitalism, and also baseball, the play spoke to an unease in the culture that critics and audiences didn't want to acknowledge during a time when victory at war seemed, and essentially was, right around the corner. After a string of failures, Miller decided that this was it. He would write one more play, and then, if it was received as indifferently, he'd find another line of work. That play was called All My Sons, and it was mounted on Broadway in 1947 by director Elia Kazan. Miller and Kazan bonded through working together. Miller described working with Kazan in revolutionary terms. It felt like, he wrote, a conspiracy, not only against the existing theater, but society, capitalism, in fact, everybody who was not part of the production. Though not an easy sell, All My Sons was championed by Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times, and it became a long-running hit. Miller's life began to change. He later wrote that, with All My Sons a solid success, quote, it occurred to me three or four times a day that if I did no work, I would still be earning a lot of money and be richer by the end of the week. This was, to Miller, an inherently amoral position to be in, and he began to worry that his ideas had all dried up. Desperate to get back in touch with the low-to-the-ground life that he believed was the source of his inspiration, he went to work in a box factory for about a week. Then, with the idea for what would become Death of a Salesman in his head, he decided he couldn't write it until he built a wooden shed with his own two hands, in which he could block out the world to get to the less-than-manual labor of writing. When Death of a Salesman opened in 1949 and won all the Tonys and the Pulitzer, suddenly this playwright who had been on the verge of packing it in just a few years earlier was the most celebrated writer in the country. In these first years of Miller's great fame, he seemed determined not to abandon his long-held, quasi-radical worldview for the life and perspective of a winner. For one thing, he couldn't get on the same page as an American culture which, in the years since winning World War II, had bought into the idea that the good times could only continue to roll if there was a bad guy to demonize. With an understanding of what was really happening in Stalinist Russia far off, Miller felt queasy about how the Germans had been embraced as allies and the Soviets demonized as the new enemy. He wrote, This ripping off of good and evil labels from one nation and pasting them onto another had done something to wither the very notion of a world even theoretically moral. If last month's friend could so quickly become this month's enemy, what depth of reality could good and evil have? Miller had always considered himself a leftist, had always identified himself with workers, immigrants, and outsiders to the American dream. He had signed petitions and participated in the activities of front groups. But unlike Kazan, he hadn't been a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s. In fact, Miller's encounters with the party came much later, in this period in the late 1940s, when Miller was apparently overcompensating for his great death of a salesman success, 
That's when he went to a few meetings of communist writers and intellectuals in New York. According to Miller, they'd drink and talk about books and plays and drink some more. There must have been some kind of spy amongst these loose-lipped literary drunks because Miller's presence at these gatherings was later known to the FBI and, by extension, the HUAC committee. But they didn't subpoena Miller, not for years. Not until after he had broken with Kazan and taken up with the most famous woman in the world. Miller may never have met Marilyn Monroe if not for Kazan. Kazan had been sleeping with her in 1950 when he and Miller traveled to Hollywood to try to get Harry Cohn at Columbia to firmly agree to produce Miller's screenplay about corruption amongst Italian dock workers in Brooklyn, called The Hook. Still believing in the quote-unquote conspiracy that he thought they were in on together, Miller thought he and Kazan were aligned in wanting to make, as Miller put it, a truthful film about a dark cellar under the American dream. He felt they were partners, and only later would Miller realize that this feeling was somewhat illusory. When Miller first met Marilyn, she was weeping. Johnny Hyde, who had been her lover and her patron, had just died, and she couldn't get over it, maybe because she hadn't really been able to say goodbye. From the hallway outside Hyde's hospital room, Marilyn had heard him crying her name, but his family wouldn't let her near. When Miller shook Marilyn's hand, he'd later remember, the shock of her body's motion sped through me. Marilyn, Kazan, and Miller began spending time together. Kazan was still sleeping with her, cavalierly, which Miller surely knew. But he couldn't believe how men who weren't sleeping with her treated her, as if her sexuality was free-floating, divorced from a human being, and as indiscriminatorily consumable as air. In a bookstore, he had to lead Marilyn away from a man who was openly masturbating at the sight of her. And this was 1950. She wasn't even famous yet. Not immune to her charms, and in fact, maybe more susceptible to her sensitivity and curiosity, which most men didn't bother to detect, Miller could feel himself falling for her. But even though prior to his trip, he had already felt what he called the aphrodisiac of celebrity intruding into his marriage, Miller was not ready to break up his family. He decided he'd better leave Los Angeles before something happened between him and Monroe. So it was that Miller was back in New York before the deal for the hook was finalized. One day, he got a call from Kazan who reported that Cohn, in deference to Roy Brewer, Union Commando, had asked Miller to change the villains in his script into communists. Brewer insisted that Miller's current story, which indicted union leaders and gangsters for the corruption in Red Hook, was a lie. He had told Cohn that if the script was filmed as written, Brewer would see that every movie projectionist in the country went on strike. It was also understood that Brewer was essentially an arm of the FBI, who didn't approve of a depiction of an American port as being inherently corrupt when that port was being used as a launching pad to send troops to Korea. If the movie was going to be made, the enemy would have to be foreign, meaning communists, rather than within. This was not something Miller felt he could go along with. 
He knew that communists were not in evidence in Red Hook. The real problem was racketeering. As part of his extensive research on the project, Miller had befriended members of the Red Hook Italian immigrant worker community he was writing about, and he visited Italy, where he saw firsthand how the homeland of his characters was struggling in post-war destitution. Though Italy had the largest communist party outside of Russia, Italians were turning towards democracy because they were so desperate for the aid provided by the United States just for basic sustenance. Miller would not be telling his own story in The Hook, but he felt a personal responsibility to depict its subjects and their situation fairly and accurately. So Miller wired Cohn and told him he was withdrawing his script. And Cohn wrote back, It's interesting how the minute we try to make the script pro-American, you pull out. Miller again found himself in conflict with Columbia over the whiff of communism the following year, when the studio was gearing up to release their film version of Death of a Salesman. When Miller refused to sign a statement of anti-communism to appease the American Legion, Columbia created a short film called Career of a Salesman, which they intended to show before screenings of the feature. The short insisted that the film's bleak depiction of the life of the American working man, which Miller already thought had been butchered and defanged, was pure fiction. The 25-minute film was full of business school professors claiming that Willie Loman was a mere throwback and that in the present day, salesmen lived fulfilling and happy lives. Miller didn't understand why a studio would pair a feature film with a short film announcing that everything the feature said was a lie, and he refused to be part of what he saw as a corporation's effort to morally bankrupt his copyright. Miller threatened to sue the studio, and they scrapped the short film. But it was clear to all after this that Miller was not playing along with the hysteric mandates of the times. It was around this time that Miller looked around him and realized that no one was making films or theater about the political climate which was currently hamstringing everyone he knew in the worlds of film and theater. Miller himself had gotten close in 1950 when he was commissioned to adapt the 1882 Ibsen play An Enemy of the People for a production starring Frederick March and Florence Eldridge. Ibsen's play deals with crisis, denial, and mob mentality. It's the story of a doctor who discovers that the supposedly curative waters in his town have become polluted. Though the problem is fixable, the other townsfolk choose to destroy the doctor instead of acknowledging the rot flowing all around them. To Miller, the story was topical because it dealt with, as he put it, the question of whether one's vision of the truth ought to be a source of guilt at a time when the mass of men condemn it as dangerous and devilish. An Enemy of the People was a failure with audiences, and Miller continued to search for a way to scratch his itch to make theater about a political situation, which he felt was a moral catastrophe. What I sought was a metaphor, he later wrote, adding in his inimitable style, a sonorous instrument whose reverberations would penetrate to the center of this miasma. He talks about what happened next as though it was a divine sign. Miller found himself reading The Devil in Massachusetts, a 1949 book by Marion Starkey describing the Salem witch trials. In the witch trials, Miller found the metaphor he'd been looking for. 
Like them, the HUAC hearings and subsequent ostracizing of those who refused to cooperate were, quote, profoundly and even avowedly ritualistic. Degradation ceremonies in which nothing was learned, but public shame and contrition was demanded. In both cases, the only way to clear oneself of suspicion was to point the finger and name the name of another. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. This was definitely Elia Kazan's feeling after he first testified to HUAC in closed session in January 1952. But as the months went by, as we discussed last week, Kazan began to see naming names as the lesser of two evils. In the spring of 1952, Kazan called Miller several times, saying he'd like to get together for a chat. Kazan never wanted to just chat, and Miller, preoccupied with other things, kept putting him off. Finally, Miller decided to take a trip to Salem to research the public records of the 17th century witch trials. On his drive up from New York, he stopped at Kazan's country home. Kazan and Miller gave different accounts of what happened that day in their respective autobiographies. According to Kazan, he was seeking Miller's advice about what to do, and Miller gave his blessing, telling him that he understood that it would be a disaster for Kazan to have to quit making movies as a result of not naming names, and ultimately pledging his support of any decision Kazan were to make. In Miller's version of the story, Kazan was seeking not advice, but forgiveness in advance of the testimony he had not yet given. Miller says he responded to this with fear, because he had never told Kazan of his own communist associations, but now he figured that if Kazan had an inkling about them, there was nothing stopping him from naming Miller's name. Miller began to leave, in a daze of sadness, 
when Kazan's wife Molly came out of the house to talk to him. Miller told her he could not support her husband's decision to cooperate with HUAC. Molly pointed to the road he was about to take to Salem and said that if Miller thought the American people saw HUAC as an enemy, he, quote, no longer understood the country. Then Miller told her he was on his way to Salem. Molly Kazan responded angrily. You're not going to equate witches with this, she exclaimed. Kazan remembers this conversation as happening at a different time, after Miller had held up a copy of Starkey's book and said, It's all here. Every scene. But Kazan agreed with his wife. It sounds childish now, he wrote later, but witches do not exist, and I knew very well that the comrades did. However it went down, Miller drove to Salem more determined than ever to capture something of the current moment in the metaphor of the witch trials. The Kazans didn't approve of what he was doing, and he didn't approve of what the Kazans were doing. To Miller, in the moment, Kazan's testimony was, as he put it, god-awful. But Miller came to understand it. He knew Kazan would not have been satisfied just working in theater. He knew Kazan felt he had unfinished business to do in Hollywood, and that this was the only way he'd be able to do it. There seemed to be no way out for him at the time, Miller later acknowledged. And he wasn't going to take anything away from Kazan's talent. He was still, in Miller's mind, the best director in the world when it came to stories about real people and real lives. But for the time being, they were at an impasse, and the work each would do over the next few years would inflate their personal break into what looked like a professional feud. Dads can be weird. They don't always do a great job of telling their loved ones what they want or need. So what to buy your dad for Father's Day? How about a Harry's shaving set? It looks cool, it feels special, and it's something that your dad will actually use. While supplies last, Harry's is offering a special limited edition shave set for Father's Day. I've used Harry's razors, they're great, and their minty shave gel smells terrific. My boyfriend loves Harry's too. He likes to let his beard grow for a couple of weeks and then shave it clean. With other razors, he'll have to use multiple blades, but Harry's blades are super sharp and provide a close, comfortable shave. The limited edition Father's Day shave set includes a matte black razor handle, a chrome razor stand, Harry's minty moisturizing foaming shave gel, three of Harry's handcrafted blade cartridges, and a travel cover, all for $40. That's less than the price of a couple of packs of blades at the drugstore. Plus, with Harry's, it all comes in a sleek, giftable box with the option to add custom engraving and a personalized card. Harry's also offers shaving sets at different price points, starting at $15. You can get one for your dad, get one for your partner, get one for yourself. Go to harrys.com right now and redeem a special offer for fans of the show. Get $5 off your first purchase with the promo code REMEMBER. Don't wait. Free shipping for Father's Day ends on Friday, June 3rd. So act now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code REMEMBER at checkout to get $5 off. 
and get Dad something he'll actually use this Father's Day. The Crucible tells the story of a group of teenage girls in 1600 Salem who are caught in what is presumed to be a ceremony meant to conjure the devil. One of those girls, Abigail, is in love with John Proctor, a married man who lives outside of town. A frenzy spreads through the town, and in order to absolve herself of guilt and seek revenge on Proctor for ending their affair, Abigail accuses his wife, Elizabeth, of witchery. These were all real people, and in reading between the lines of the historical records, Miller had imagined the affair between the very young Abigail and the much older John. Miller had a way of writing his own life into plays without being totally conscious that he was doing it. In this case, it seems like his guilt over his divided feelings, for Marilyn Monroe and for his wife, led him to anchor his story about a society pouncing on the presumed guilty with a character consumed with romantic guilt. Miller would insist that his play wasn't meant to damn the informer, but the mob mentality that made a man feel like he had no choice but to inform. And yet, he aligns the act of pointing fingers, the act committed by, amongst others, Kazan, with the bitter revenge of the jilted mistress. Certain of Kazan's statements suggest he might agree with this interpretation. His lingering resentment at the party for considering him disposable is as out of proportion to the length of his commitment to communism as the scale of teenage Abigail's revenge against John Proctor for choosing his wife over her. In addition to being a totally self-interested informer, Abigail is a liar, a thief, and maybe most significantly, an immature girl consumed with petty grudges who poses as a truth-teller with worse than an indifference to hurting others. She wants to hurt them. The Crucible opened in 1953 to mixed reviews. The political parables were well-noted, and several of the New York papers suggested they went too far. Molly Kazan's complaint, that there weren't any real witches but there were real communists, became a common theme. Of course, that was true, in a sense. It was also true that as far as HUAC's investigations into Hollywood went, the devil was as spectral as it had been in Salem. The people whose names got named were not radical revolutionaries or spies, and they posed as much a threat to the American way of life as John and Elizabeth Proctor did to Salem. That was not being openly acknowledged in 1953, but the message of the play has aged well. The Crucible would close on Broadway and then come back less than two years later in a hit off-Broadway production, which ran for two years. It became by far Miller's most known and revived play. It's on Broadway right now in a production starring Ben Wishaw and Saoirse Ronan. And it has been produced all over the world, everywhere inviting comparisons to current political and human conflicts. When Miller was invited to the premiere of a production of the play in Brussels, the first time The Crucible would be performed in Europe, he happily agreed. But his passport was expired, and when he filed a last-minute renewal, it was denied. In fact, a representative of the State Department told Miller that he would not be allowed a passport without further investigation. Miller knew what that meant, that he was under suspicion of communism. Such suspicion was then enough to make it legal for the State Department to deny him a passport. He issued a press statement denying any allegiance to the Communist Party. 
But this would be the beginning of his problems, not the end of them. By this time, Miller was, as he put it, deeply involved with Marilyn Monroe, who was, in late 1954, not just Hollywood's most popular actress, but a huge national sensation. She had increased her fame amongst men through her marriage to Joe DiMaggio, which was short-lived in practice, but didn't technically end until 1955. Miller and Monroe's romance began before that, Miller, too, was technically still married, and Monroe couldn't walk around undisguised without being mobbed, so they spent time together in a suite at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Feuding with Fox, the studio where she was under contract, Marilyn was in exile from Hollywood. She wanted to shore up her acting credentials, and she went to the actor's studio to do it. In early 1955, Miller and Monroe's relationship was sheltered, and blissful. Not all was well out in the world. The same newspapers that were chronicling Marilyn's every move and mocking her as a prima donna for standing up to her studio were also attacking Miller on unrelated grounds. He had been working with a New York City agency to research and write a film about the problem of juvenile delinquency. The Hearst newspaper started running stories about Miller's dangerous leftism, and then the studio backed out of their cooperation with the project. Miller was later informed that a representative of HUAC had been sent to warn the New York officials that Miller was under investigation by them and would, they hoped, soon be outed as a communist. The subpoena didn't come until 1956. Miller was in Reno at the time, establishing residency in order to divorce his wife and marry Marilyn. Marilyn was in Hollywood, filming the movie Bus Stop, and she'd call Miller in tears, declaring that she wanted to quit acting and just live a simple life, just be his wife. On the weekends, Miller would sneak off to meet her. They'd tryst at the Chateau Marmont, where Marilyn's acting coach, Paula Strasberg, was staying. Paula Strasberg was one of the names Kazan had named in 1952, and Miller would come to see her and her husband, Lee Strasberg, as enemies to both Marilyn's self-sufficiency and to his romance with her. One of Monroe's biographers, Donald Spado, notes that Marilyn's FBI file indicates the Bureau believed Monroe lived at the chateau, which she did not. Spado stops just short of implying that the FBI had that impression because they were either tailing Miller or getting information from someone else at the chateau, such as Paula Strasberg. Somebody was telling somebody something. When Miller was finally served his HUAC subpoena, it was in Reno. Miller didn't know why the committee had waited so long. His actual period of faith in radical politics, which he described as more of a moral sense of solidarity with the downtrodden than anything else, was long over. And he was in 1956 basically uninterested in politics of any kind. If they hadn't subpoenaed him in 1953, when he had written a major Broadway play implicitly comparing congressmen to a community which hung innocent people for witchcraft, why would they want to talk to him now? The only thing he could think of that would make him of interest was that blonde in the chateau. Miller's conviction that he had been targeted by HUAC only because the congressman wanted to share newsprint space with Marilyn Monroe was given credence when, according to Miller, 
a Congressman Walter, then the chairman of HUAC, offered to render Miller's subpoena null and void if Monroe would only pose for a picture with him. Miller declined this easy out. He almost seemed determined to offer himself up for martyrdom. Kazan had doubted that anyone he informed on would have sacrificed themselves to save him, and Miller was not more generous in his assessment of his community. If there was a conspiracy on the left, he didn't feel like he was a part of it. In fact, he mostly felt resentment from his fellow writers, particularly after the Crucible. Or maybe he was just pissed that Clifford Odets had dismissed the play as just a story about a bad marriage. But Miller remained firm in the belief that the committee's inquiries were dangerous to the ideal of free speech. As Miller wrote, the manifestly anti-democratic contempt for basic American rights on the part of the committee was impossible to support. On the stand, the committee presented Arthur Miller with a Communist Party card for A. Miller, registered under Arthur's former address in Brooklyn. But this kind of thing wasn't legit proof, because party registrars often added names to their roles of people and made out cards for those who had merely attended meetings but had not joined the party, because the registrars wanted to make it seem like they were doing an awesome job of recruiting. The committee brought out a six-inch thick stack of papers, representing the petitions Miller had signed. He didn't deny that he had signed any of them. They read aloud from Listen, My Children, a one-act satire Miller had written in 1939 with Norman Roston, which describes a government committee practicing something like water torture. 1939 was the year HUAC was established, and Miller would later acknowledge that they had been his inspiration. He acknowledged that he had participated in a conference in 1949 at the Waldorf Astoria, which he called a fateful attempt to rescue the wartime alliance with the Soviet Union in the face of the mounting pressures of the Cold War. He admitted that he had attended some evening meetings of Marxist writers. When pressed, he refused to name names of anyone else who had been at those meetings. He didn't take the fifth, which would have made him immune from prosecution, he simply asked the committee not to make him answer the question. In invoking the First Amendment and his presumed right to silence, Miller put himself in league with the Hollywood Ten. Huack told him that he was officially in contempt of the committee. While he awaited trial on the contempt charge, Miller was allowed to go with Marilyn to England, where she filmed The Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier. Feeling like he was on borrowed time, Knowing that when he returned to the States, he'd be tried for contempt and probably convicted, Miller spent his days writing a screenplay about lost men and the woman whose deep feeling for the sacredness of life makes their nihilism impossible. It was intended as a gift for his wife. Miller's contempt trial was unusual because his lawyer refused to allow it to be an open and shut case. Amongst other things, he brought in former Senator Harry P. Kane to testify that Miller's plays were not communist in form or content. Miller was sentenced to a month in jail, but the sentence was suspended, and in a few months, it was turned over on appeal. And just like that, the committee was done with Arthur Miller. But Arthur Miller was not done with the committee, or the role it had played in his personal life.
There are scant stories about the extensive communication between Kazan and Miller, between the former's testimony in 1952, and their professional reunion to produce Miller's play, After the Fall, under the auspices of Kazan's newly formed Lincoln Center Repertory Theater Group in 1961. In his Blacklist history naming names, Victor Novosky says Marilyn brought the two men to the point of a truce, which seems somewhat unlikely. Novosky also tells a story set in 1956. Miller finished a one-act version of A View from the Bridge, a result of the long research process about Sicilian dock workers in Brooklyn that had once taken the form of a screenplay called The Hook, which Kazan was going to direct for Columbia until Miller refused to insert anti-communist rhetoric to appease the unions. Though it seems somewhat unlikely that Kazan would have a professional interest in this play given that he had just made his own dock worker film, On the Waterfront, He reportedly wired Miller after reading Bridge, saying, I have read your play and would be honored to direct it. Miller supposedly responded, You don't understand. I didn't send it to you because I wanted you to direct it. I sent it to you because I wanted you to know what I think of stool pigeons. Neither Miller nor Kazan mentioned this story in their autobiography. Miller doesn't mention communicating with Kazan during this period at all. Kazan says he ran into Miller in New York in 1952, a few months after his testimony, and that Miller snubbed him. He also talks about having dinner with Miller in Hollywood in 1960, while Marilyn was filming Let's Make Love, and apparently having an affair with her co-star, Eve Montan. Kazan says he called Miller after hearing of the affair, and though they didn't talk about it over dinner... Kazan held on to his sense of Miller's pain at this time. In their books, both Kazan and Miller agree that they were ultimately brought back together by Bob Whitehead, with whom Kazan had been selected to run the fledgling Lincoln Center Repertory Theater. This is pretty much all Kazan says about the reconciliation. Miller acknowledges that it was something he had to think about. I had not changed my opinion that his testimony before the Un-American Activities Committee had disserved both himself and the cause of freedom, Miller wrote. But he ultimately decided that, quote, to reject him was to reject the hope for a national theater in this time. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. After the Fall is generally remembered as Arthur Miller's play about what it was like to fall head over heels in love with Marilyn Monroe and then leave her to die alone. It is that, sort of, but it's also a lot of other things. Married in 1956, Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller stuck it out through the filming of The Misfits, the John Huston film which Miller had written for Marilyn, to give her a vehicle in which she could show that she could be something other or richer than a sex pot. The Misfits is one of my favorite films, and I don't want to go too deeply into it here because it could be the basis for a whole series of its own. But suffice it to say, its production was extremely troubled, and the Miller-Monroe marriage couldn't survive the trouble. From Miller's perspective, his wife had been brainwashed by her acting coach, Paula Strasberg, and Marilyn had in turn manipulated everyone around her into enabling a dangerous addiction to sleeping pills. The shoot was actually interrupted so that Monroe could go to a rehab for the pills. Miller had written a happy ending, and in so doing, he hoped that a happy ending would manifest itself in his life. And then one afternoon... Marilyn commented on the central couple in the movie, what they really should do is break up at the end. They didn't on screen, but off screen, they did. At the end of the shoot, Miller and Monroe went their separate ways. They were divorced in 1961. By then, Miller was already involved with Inga Marath, a photographer who he met on the set of The Misfits. Marath and Miller would soon marry, But judging by his next work, Miller's tying of a third knot was not without worry. After the fall takes place in the mind of Quentin, its male protagonist, but the space of his mind, as described in the stage directions, is anchored by the looming tower of a concentration camp, which Quentin is visiting with Holga, a woman he's trying to decide whether or not to commit to. This echoes an actual trip taken by Miller and Marath after his breakup with Monroe. It's loosely a play about the question of how to move on and into the future in the wake of tragedy. The tragedy of the Holocaust, the tragedy of a woman you loved that you couldn't or wouldn't save, and yes, the tragedy of the blacklist. The key motif comes in a line spoken a couple of times by Quentin, the Arthur Miller stand-in character. I don't know anymore what people are to one another. Quentin says this line for the second time as an aside to the audience in the midst of a conversation with the character Mickey, who is explaining to Quentin why he's decided to name names to a congressional committee. In After the Fall, Quentin and Mickey are both lawyers, but in pretty much every other detail, they're clearly modeled after Miller and Kazan. There's another character, one whom Mickey asks to join him in naming names, who dies prematurely, who seems like a combination of Clifford Odets and John Garfield. And then there's Maggie, the unconscionably sexy blonde who Quentin meets at a bus stop. This is one of those parallels to real life that is so stupid it must have been unconscious. Remember, Miller finally left his wife and went to Reno for a divorce so that he could marry Marilyn, 
while she was filming the movie Bus Stop. But in other ways, Miller's sketching of Maggie recalls Marilyn with poignancy. He recycles Marilyn's story of not being able to say goodbye to Johnny Hyde when he was dying in the hospital. He creates around the character of Maggie this sense that sexuality is both her only marketable asset and the thing that's ultimately going to destroy her. Despite all of this, and despite even recycling conversations that he has elsewhere in his book cited as having happened in real life between he and Marilyn, Miller claimed to be initially surprised that anyone thought Maggie was based on his very famous second wife. He'd also assign blame for this misconception on Kazan, who cast his own volatile mistress, Barbara Loden, in the part, and had her play it wearing a blonde wig. Regardless of Miller's intention, timing turned him into an easy target. Marilyn Monroe was alive when he started writing After the Fall. By the time the play was in rehearsal, Monroe had died of the pill overdose that Miller had predicted while they were together. Miller claimed that he wrote The Death of Maggie, believing that Marilyn had turned a corner after they had parted, that she was healthy and happily making movies in Hollywood, and that to make his heroine destined to die would be to distance her further from his second wife. Miller said it was only when the play was basically finished that he learned of Monroe's death. When a reporter called him and asked if he'd be coming to the funeral, Miller said no, because she won't be there. Ironically, in his memoir, Miller says After the Fall is about, quote, how we, nations and individuals, destroy ourselves by denying that this is precisely what we are doing. Kazan wrote at length about how the play was all about Marilyn, even taking credit for pushing Miller to be more revealing about their relationship in the play's second act. Neither man mentions in their memoirs the fact that Miller had essentially scripted for Kazan a second degradation ceremony by asking him to direct an actor playing himself as an unsympathetic informer. According to one member of the acting company, quoted anonymously by Navasky, Kazan thought the character based on him, and played in the original production by Ralph Meeker, was the hero of the play. Jason Robards, who played Quentin, didn't totally disagree. He hated his character, and after one heated rehearsal in which he fought with Kazan, Robards disappeared for days on a drinking binge. That same anonymous commenter suggests that if Miller thought he was pulling one over on Kazan by forcing him to confront himself as an informer, Kazan thought it was the other way around, that in laying bare the tortured emotional life of his deceased ex-wife, Miller was in essence naming names invading the privacy of a woman who wasn't around to defend herself. Though reviews of After the Fall were mixed, the play was a hit. Barbara Loden won a Tony Award for playing Maggie. The success was bittersweet, because all in all, it was a pretty tragic time. Marilyn had died. Kazan's wife, Molly, died suddenly while the play was in rehearsals. And that was not long after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The world was changing. Four years into the decade, the 60s were beginning. By the mid-1960s, the blacklist was all but over, and soon it would be brushed under the rug. 
In our final two new episodes this season, we'll talk about how that happened. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was narrated and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. It was written by me and Matthew Desim. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Henry Malofsky. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or the podcatcher of your choice. Also, our whole archive is now on Spotify. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Just